AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. FYI politics with Brett Johnson the day after the election. Sasha, you're a recent college graduate. I remember my days back at Augsburg College, I guess now called Augsburg University. I took advantage of this a few times where I was able to switch my grade Oh, probably about four weeks into my term, from being the traditional A, B, C, D, F to a pass-fail system. I did that a few times in in my days back in school, and I think that's exactly what uh, Joe Biden has done with his presidential campaign. We're just going straight pass-fail. And under that system, I guess he won the presidential election. So figured that was kind of a fitting analogy for what happened last night. How about you in there? Did you ever take advantage of the old pass-fail grade system? No, I was even luckier. Well, depends on how you define lucky. <laughs> for COVID, we just got basically it wasn't even pass fail. Was did this was this person did this person survive? For <laughs> that's graduation? also yeah. that's also very fitting, I think, for the Joe Biden campaign yeah. as well. As it appears, he is more than likely going to narrowly win the presidential election, as he does have leads right now in Wisconsin and Michigan, which puts him. Right on the dot, 270 electoral votes, but still think there's an outside chance he might also take Georgia. Want to talk about what happened last night, though, especially on the local and state level. So to do that, I'm bringing in Patrick Kulikan. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Website is minnesotareformer.com, as we'll be chatting about and recapping all of the races last night in Minnesota. So, Patrick, welcome into the show. Thanks for coming on. Good to be here. Absolutely. So, you know, if you were to tell me last night that Joe Biden was going to win Minnesota by seven percentage points, I would assume that would be a really good night for the DFL locally in the state. But that wasn't necessarily the case, as at least uh, in several of these races, the Republicans were able to make some gains both at the federal and the state level. So, yeah, even though Biden won it by seven points, it's kind of the case where the Dems appear to have won the battle, but not necessarily have won the war. That's right. Uh, I agree that I, I thought that if he were, if, if Biden were to win the state uh, by anything north of five, that would be bode well for the DFL, the Democratic Labor Party, and in the legislature and in these congressional districts. That did not turn out to be the case, and the reason is that uh, Biden really uh, racked up a ton of votes in the Twin Cities. Um, Really huge turnout, and uh, which is great for Biden, but uh, it doesn't do you anything um, in those farther suburban races and rural races where uh, they needed uh, to uh, at least hold their own and in some cases uh, try to flip seats in order to take legislative majorities. They weren't able to do that. In fact, they lost some ground in the Minnesota House. And it uh, looks like, uh, at the very least, uh, it's going to be the, the same in the Senate with the 35-32 Republican majority. Uh, so, yeah, again, the problem, all the Democrats kind of packed into uh, a smaller uh, geographic area. So we'll talk a little bit more about the state legislature, but let's go through what what happened in the congressional races as uh, we did have one incumbent getting defeated. That would be Colin Peterson knocked off by uh, Michelle Fishbach. And outside of that, all the other incumbents won. But 
what happened in the congressional races pretty much is a microcosm for exactly what happened around the rest of the state, where now with our congressional representatives, there are no DFLers that represent rural districts, and that's pretty much what we saw at the state legislature as well, isn't it? That's right. Uh, that that retreat uh, from, from the rural parts of the state from greater Minnesota has been going on for about a decade now. Uh, we've seen it in other parts of the country. Uh, it actually happened much uh, much earlier in other parts of the country. Uh, it was that's a, kind of a later development here, um, and it took about a decade. But we're just about all all the way there. And there's there's really just a very few remaining uh, Greater Minnesota uh, DFL uh, lawmakers anymore. Um, and amongst the congressional seats. Uh, Colin Peterson. I mean, that that's sort of emblematic of of the DFL's problems in rural Minnesota. There's a guy who was chair of the agriculture committee, which uh, in in a very ag heavy district, you know, would be very important to the voters there. He's well known to the voters there, uh, having served for 30 years. Uh, he's very quite moderate. I think probably the most moderate Democrat. Uh, in in the United States Congress, he voted against uh, impeachment, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, uh, and yet he still lost, and by a fairly uh, comfortable margin. Uh, then you take uh, someone like Jim Hagedorn; he's a first-term Republican. Uh, you and I talked many times on the program about his various uh, pro- ethical problems. Um, out of his office, uh, and uh, and yet, and he faced a good good opponent in Dan Fian, who came close in 2018. Fian is a military guy, been a teacher. He almost has that Tim Walls uh, profile, and yet it looks like Hagenorn uh, again winning relatively comfortably. I would say that there's a, a you may want to get talk about this anyway, but in in that race in the first congressional district. The, the real spoiler there is a legal marijuana candidate um, who whose total uh, was really quite significant. And if you take those his votes and add them to Dan Fian, then maybe Hagedorn goes down. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I liked your comparison you made between Dan Feehan and Tim Walls, because I feel like if Feehan can caught in, he would have been a very tough incumbent to defeat. But nonetheless, that's uh, not the case as Hagedorn does hang on in CD1. By the way, should point out in the U.S. Senate, not a big surprise, but Tina Smith will end up defeating Jason Lewis by about five percentage points. Uh, let's switch gears now and talk about what happened in the state Senate. A few minutes ago, you mentioned how, well, the Dems in CD1 were close but not close enough. And that was this was kind of the case in the state Senate as well. Basically, we head into the night with a 35-32 majority for Republicans, and it looks like that's pretty much where we're going to be, well, after this election, as the Dems were able to flip two seats, but the problem was they also lost two seats as the Dems were able to get pickups in Senate District 44 in the West Metro, as well as that Lindsay Port over Dan Hall race in Senate District 56. But Republicans were able to flip a couple of seats themselves, including Zach Duckworth knocking off Matt Little and then Dan Sparks in that, I think it's the Albert Lee area, the DFL incumbent lost to Gene Dornick by about 2,600 votes. But 
There were some other races where Democrats were within about 1,000 votes of flipping some seats, but they just didn't quite come close enough. I'm thinking about that St. Cloud race between Jerry Ralph and Eric Putnam. Also, we have a couple of races down in southern Minnesota where Dave Senjim looks like he'll narrowly defeat Sarah Flick. And in 26, it looks like Carl Nelson will end up defeating Alita Baroud by about 900 votes. So, yeah, all of these races were decided by less than 1,200 votes. And while close is good, uh, it still doesn't get you the seat at the end of the day, which is very, very problematic for the DFL since we're back to where we started in that state Senate. Right. They they competed in a lot of areas, um, but um, just didn't quite get there. And in a couple, in some of those races, you, you can imagine where I think Rochester is moving in the DFL's direction. If you consider how the population there is changing, it's becoming more diverse, and uh, you're getting a lot of uh, Mayo uh, professionals, people with advanced degrees. Um, they're moving into the Democratic column. It's not happening fast enough. And so they, they came up just short there. Uh, that St. Cloud district is per, kind of perennially a, uh, a battleground district. It's just going to go back and forth. Again, there you had a marijuana legalization candidate. Uh, without If you add his votes to the DFL uh, candidate, uh, they probably have, would have won that race as well. Um, then, you, then you have uh, Warren Limmer out in Maple Grove. Um, that was um, probably a bit of a stretch, uh, pretty far out suburb uh, with, a, with a tradition of, of Republican voting. Um, has you know started to move into the Democratic column a little bit, but again they came up short there um, and spent a lot of money doing it. So um, you know it's great to be competitive in all these seats, but if you don't win them, you don't win them, and and then to lose, uh, as you said, um, Sparks and, and Matt Little. I talked to a DFL operative this morning uh, who said, you know, those seats were probably, uh, we were renting them, as they say. I mean, these were basically Republican seats where they had, were lucky to have Democratic members. And in a presidential election year that is so polarized, um, you're just going to have trouble running ahead of uh, the top of the ticket, as was the case with, uh, with Little and, and Sparks. So, um, yeah, disappointing night, and it's just, for, for the DFL, and it's especially so because we're going to have redistricting after the 2020 census, so, so the legislature is going to redraw congressional and legislative maps, and if the DFL had taken the Senate, they could have drawn those maps um, and in a much more favorable fashion um, and really dominated Minnesota politics for the next decade. Yeah, instead, we'll just be back to where we started with that 35-32 majority for the Republicans. Uh, taking a look at what happened on the State House side, Republicans looked like they were able to pick off a number of seats. But at least by my math, as I was counting through some of these closer races, it looks like at the very minimum, the DFL will have 69 seats, which would be enough for a majority. There is a chance they could pick up maybe one or two other seats since we do have several races, which are going to be decided by fewer than like 100 votes but basically it's going to be a narrower majority for the state house of representatives for the dfl and i want to talk to you about what that means here patrick because it looks like representative pat garofalo republican from farmington was tweeting last night that well they might have the votes now in both chambers to strip governor tim walls of his emergency powers which could be significant do you still buy that with 
despite the fact that the DFL looks like they'll hang on to a majority, albeit by a very narrow margin? Yeah, I, I don't know if uh, if they're going to be able to to get DFL votes uh, in the House to to strip Walls of his a majority as Walls goes into the re-election cycle. Mm-hmm. I presume that Walls will be able to lobby uh, DFL House members and say, "Hey, you know, the, this is the, this is why I have this authority. It's important." The uh, the pandemic is really raging. We have another record day of cases. We've seen the the real crisis that has enveloped our neighboring states, and now is not really the time uh, to strip uh, the governor of his emergency powers, um, and then have the legislature start creating policy on uh, the pandemic. Um, so I'm a little skeptical. Uh, that you're going to see Democratic House members cross over and with Republicans really rebuke the governor like that. Um, I'm not sure I see it happening, Um, at least not right off the bat. Yeah, at least right now, if the Dems do hang on to only 69 seats, they would only require three Dems to switch sides and uh, vote with Republicans on stripping power. So not out of the realm of possibilities, but as you said, that's still going to be a tough lift to even get three Republicans to switch their votes on that issue. So you alluded to this a few minutes ago, how some of these legalized cannabis parties, well, had a very, very big impact on some of these races. And yeah, by my math, I'm counting, and this is including congressional and these legislative races, I count five races in Minnesota where those third-party candidates scored more votes than the difference between the Republican and Democratic candidates. That would be, uh, yeah, I count five altogether, which is not a good sign for the DFL because for the Republicans, this is a big boon to them to continue, well, doing what they're doing because this is a wedge issue that was probably going to save their majority in the state Senate. And I believe since the legalized cannabis party candidate did pick up at least five percentage points in that U.S. Senate race, they're going to hang on to their major party status. So, yeah, this cannabis party issue is still going to continue on for the DFL into the 2020s, it appears. Yeah, this is a this is a real anchor hanging around their neck, um, and uh, as you say, it, it goes on, and and uh, it's only going to continue to help Republicans because they control the state Senate, and they're not going to give a vote. They're not going to they're not going to vote for legalized cannabis, and so these legalized cannabis voters will continue to support legalized cannabis candidates even though by doing so, they're actually preventing the legalization of adult use cannabis. So it's, it's a bitter irony, um, but it just gives you some idea of, of where voters are mm-hmm. when the most remarkable instance of this was in the second congressional district where Adam Weeks, we've talked about the situation here, he's a, he was a marijuana legalization candidate. He actually died in September, um, was still on the ballot, and managed to get 24,000 votes. Uh, so that kind of tells you um, the, 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 the salience of that issue. It's very important to a lot of voters, but they're, they're obviously not very educated about it, because if they were, they uh, would not be supporting candidates 
who then throw the election to the Republicans, who in turn have no interest in legalizing marijuana. Mm -hmm. And yeah, especially when you're talking about a third party that is campaigning on just one issue, which is legalizing cannabis. And as you said, well, that's not likely to happen under Republicans. The, The only thing I could read into that as to why they're probably still getting such a high percentage of the votes, and this is probably putting too much analysis on it, being that, well, most people who end up voting just casually follow politics. Maybe there could be something to the fact that back when we legalized medical uh, marijuana, uh, back in, I think it was like 2013 and 14, we did it with uh, with a ton of restrictions on it. So maybe there's still some blowback from that, but probably reading too much into that, since I think uh, most people don't pay attention to politics all that closely, and they probably see, oh yeah, there's a legalized cannabis candidate. Yeah, I'll end up voting for them anyways yeah i think people see you know they 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 favor it and uh you know they they don't like incumbents they don't you know they're sort of they consider themselves uh anti-establishment or what have you and they don't like the two parties and so they they Mm -hmm. support this Um, but if you're really committed to legalizing cannabis uh you would not actually support the legalize the, the these these parties because uh, they're, they're actually now just obstructing uh, legalization of cannabis. So let's look ahead to 2022 and what could happen in at least the governor's race. We obviously know that Tim Walls, the incumbent DFLer, will certainly be the DFL nominee, but the Republican race for governor could really be very closely watched and very intense as we already have Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO guy, all but hinting that he is going to run for governor in 2022. But then we look at over at someone like Paul Gazelka, who, uh, despite the winds or predictions blowing against him, saying, oh, you're probably going to lose the majority, all of a sudden he could be emboldened for a gubernatorial run in 2022. So there could be a lot of jockeying for position among Republicans uh, heading into the 2022 cycle. And we know since we're already November 4th, 2020, essentially that 2022 cycle has already begun. So what do you make about what we're going to see from the Republicans over the next few years as they uh, try to set themselves up for that governor's race in a couple of years? You're right. The uh, The governor's race uh, certainly starts today. And uh, I think Gazalka, having held uh, the Senate, um, probably thinks of himself as, as a leading candidate. Um, I think it's, it's pretty tough to run uh, as a legislative leader, because uh, you're forced to compromise, uh, both with uh, House Speaker Melissa Horton and also with Governor Tim Walz, and the Republican base just, uh, just doesn't cotton to uh, uh, its leaders uh, compromising. Um, but he, you know, he's going to have to. They're going to have to do a budget, and uh, so he's going to have to compromise. Um, which, of course, is if he's considering running for governor, that that makes that's going to make a budget deal making that much harder. It's going to be interesting to watch next year. Um, I also think that legislative leaders are under the false impression that people know who they are, and the reality is they don't. Uh, Lindell comes in with uh, good name recognition. Uh, you know the, the support of President Trump. Uh, you know there's a little bit of charisma there. He certainly, you know, maybe he has the money to self-fund. Uh, but the reality is that we actually just don't know that much about him, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sure once we start looking into him, um, 
there'll be things that maybe aren't aren't that desirable uh, to the people of Minnesota or the, the voters of Minnesota. And um, also, I would uh, I would note that our uh, reporter, our former reporter Dina Winter, talked to him today. He said he's kind of reevaluating. He's sort of evaluating. He said that his promise was that if if Minnesota went for Trump, then he would run for governor. The fact that that didn't happen means he's reevaluating. So, you know, a lot of these guys who are kind of successful in business or what have you, they talk a big game, and then when it comes time to pull the trigger, it's like, a, you know, maybe not. Um, so we'll have to see about that. I think Republicans are looking, um, you know, Republicans have been talking about someone like uh, like Doug Baker, the CEO of Ecolab. Um, but the, the problem with the these kind of uh, business elites is you have to go through the whole, uh, you have to, to get through the, the Republican primary, and the Republican Party has become, is really the party of Donald Trump, and we saw that in 2018 when Jeff Johnson, um, who was seen, I think, is, is, uh, as a more loyal to President Trump, defeated Tim Pawlenty, uh, who was, you know, a two-time governor the last, the last Republican to win a statewide race in Minnesota, but he was thoroughly rebuked by Republican voters who did not like that taint of uh, establishment um, Republicanism. So it should be an interesting race. I think some others will, I'm sure some others will throw their hat in the ring. Um, you know, Walls has to be seen as an early favorite. Uh, he's broadly uh, well-liked. He's a talented politician. Um, but uh, it is going to be uh, the first midterm of Joe Biden's uh, presidency, assuming that Biden wins, and, and usually the party out of uh, the party that has the White House struggles in those midterm elections. So uh, I'm sure they're they're not overconfident in the governor's office right now. Yeah, most certainly. And uh, as you said, that midterm could be brutal for Democrats, especially if uh, Joe Biden does end up winning the presidency, which appears to be the case. Hey, that's Patrick Kulikan. He is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Website is minnesotareformer.com. Great resource to follow along what's happening in Minnesota politics. Patrick, thanks for checking in today. Great to be here. We'll talk to you next week. We'll take a break and come on back, and we'll focus on a few more state Senate races, especially that Warren Limmer seat that Republicans were able to hold on to, as Kevin Featherly with Minnesota Lawyer was following that race very closely last night. Uh, he was able to speak to both of the candidates. That would be DFLer Bonnie Westland and the incumbent Warren Limmer. So we'll get some analysis from Kevin on that race coming up next here on AM 950. <music> With all the convenient big box stores that sell appliances, why do so many Minnesotans choose Warner Stellion? Check online to learn that Warner Stellion is a Minnesota family-owned business for over 60 years. Warner Stellion sells more brands than anyone else, and our passionate specialists are committed to impressing you so much that you'll refer us to everyone you know. That's our mission here at Warner Stellion. Ask around, check us out online, and when it's your time to buy appliances, join over 300,000 Minnesota homeowners and choose the specialists, Warner Stellion. 
Hi, I'm Peter Solak. And I'm Adam Ostrowski. We are here at Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces to talk about the joy of live fire cooking. Cooking over a live fire is the oldest and most basic form of cooking. What's new is in the way a fire is handled and its heat is managed. It's easier to experience and enjoy the smell and taste of food cooked over a live fire. Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces sells and installs live fire grills, fire pits, and ovens. Let us help you experience the smell, the taste, the fun of cooking with fire. Pizza was first made and is still best made in an open fire oven. The radiant and conductive heat of a live fire is unmatched for wood roasting and baking artisan breads too. Come see the many ways you can cook over a live fire. Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces strives to maintain a healthy environment for their customers and employees. They invite you to visit weekdays 9.30 to 5.30 and Saturdays 9.30 to 4. You'll find an uncrowded and comfortable social space to learn about Woodland Stoves' many indoor and outdoor fireplace products. More at woodlandstoves.com. Hi, it's Tom. Solar power is more important than ever as a long-term investment for yourself and the community. That's why I trust All Energy Solar to provide a cost-effective, environmentally friendly energy system. But some of the government incentive programs that make solar affordable are expiring in 2021. So now is the time to get your solar project on the books. All Energy Solar can walk you through the process using their zero-contact virtual evaluation process. Financing options are available for those who qualify, so go green and start saving at allenergysolar.com today. Sasha for your AM 950 weather. This afternoon, sunny skies with a high near 76 degrees. Tonight, mostly clear skies with a low around 44. Thursday, sunny skies with a high near 66. Take advantage of this Thanksgiving special and save $1,000 or more on a new high-efficiency furnace from Standard Heating and Air Conditioning. Ask about payment options or 0% financing. Learn how you can save on your new furnace at standardheating.com slash specialoffers. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Wednesday edition of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson the day after the election as we're recapping what happened in all of these races around Minnesota and analyzing, well, why some of these races went the way that they did. And one of the races in the state Senate that people were watching closely was Senate District 34. This is a seat that currently is occupied by Warren Limmer, who is a high-ranking Republican in the state Senate. There was a lot of money poured into this race as he was being challenged by Democrat Bonnie Westlin. And at the end of the day, it appears Limmer is going to win this race by about 1,000 votes. So someone who was following Senate District 34 closely last night was Kevin Featherly with Minnesota Lawyer. He is their capital reporter, and their website is minnlawyer.com. As he joins us now to talk about uh, SD34 and also what happened in that state Supreme Court race last night where Paul Thiessen was able to fend off a challenge from Michelle McDonald. So, Kevin, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Have you been getting any sleep recently, <laughs> or at least yesterday? I don't remember. What day is it? Yeah, Wednesday, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to bed till probably about like 4.30 or 5 a.m. last night just tracking what was going on, and I'm sure you're you're probably running on fumes as well. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. I got to bed about 3.30. I, I wrapped up my writing about 2.30, but I, I thought, you know, I was living on the false promise that the Wisconsin returns were going to show up. Uh, and at 3.30, they said it would be 35 minutes hence, and I said, okay, it's time for Daddy to go to bed. 
<laughs> Probably a wise decision from you. <laughs> I'm uh, most certainly yeah. guessing. So you, of course, were following, as I was talking about, SD34 very closely because there was yeah. a ton of money poured into this race last night. And, yeah, Limmer hung on to win. So uh, tell me about what you saw in that in that very competitive district last night. Well, um, you're right about the money. It's somewhere between 1.4 and 1.6. I, I reported, based on my calculations, 1.4. MinPost calculated 1.6, I think, based on uh, they're diving a little deeper into some of the smaller independent groups that were spending money. So there, there is likely accurate. I surveyed the largest of the independent expenditure groups. Um, so, you know, let's call it $1.5 million. Um, that shatters all records in that district. I talked to Warren Limmer last night and, and he, you know, sort of struck a note of alarm about the amount of money that's being spent there because, and this is not a new complaint, but candidates really lose control of their messaging when these outside groups come flooding in, um, you know, and he was, uh, he was subject to a, an ad that he really felt was highly unfair. It showed a, a I, I don't remember which group put it out there, but it showed him speaking, um, as he described to me last night, to a group of young Republicans. And he, as he said, he was speaking with a little bit extra bravado. He said something to the effect of, um, you know, I, it, it, he enjoys the look in the eyes of his opponents when he tells them no. Well, what the, the independent group claimed is that he was answering a question about, uh, you know, his opposition to gun reform. But he said that that's not the question that was asked. He didn't remember precisely what the one the question that he answered was, but he that hadn't come up in that discussion. So you know he's really alarmed um, about the amount of money that's being spent. Uh, it, it really really was pretty stunning. Uh, and and it's, it, when you track it, you see that a lot of that money is not spent in support of candidates. It's spent you know shooting at the opponent, depending on what you know, like the Alliance for Better Minnesota would take shots at Limmer, and the, the business groups would take a shot at Bonnie Westland. Speaking with Kevin Featherly, he is the Capitol reporter for Minnesota Lawyer, as we're discussing Senate District 34, which includes uh, the Northwest Metro areas like Maple Grove and Rogers. And this was seen as a real bellwether race last night, because if DFLers had won that seat, it's very likely they would be in the majority today. But of course, that didn't happen. And now it looks like Republicans will maintain that 35 to 32 majority. And that's a big reason why we saw so much money put into that district. And as you said, Kevin, well, this $1.5 million, this wasn't necessarily raised by the candidates. These were mostly coming from outside groups. And as you said, yeah, the candidates didn't really have control over, well, what was being said in these messages. So that was certainly uh, frustrating for Limmer, as you were bringing up. So do we have any idea where this money was coming from? I know you mentioned that. I think Alliance for or Better Minnesota was among the groups. I know some uh, business interests were behind uh, Warren Limmer. Uh, where exactly was all this money coming from, if we know? A lot of a very a lot of groups, but uh, a, a few examples. Lines for Better Minnesota. Every town for gun con- gun safety spent quite a bit of money um, uh, supporting, and in other words, sort of attack ads against Limmer. Education Minnesota, Planned Parenthood. They were all pouring money into the into that race. Um, some of the GOP leaning groups were like Advanced Minnesota, which is a conservative independent group, uh, Freedom Club State PAC, the Coalition of Minnesota Businesses, um, quite a few uh, groups, a lot of examples. 
the the alliance uh, spent an enormous amount of money. They spent one hundred and one thousand dollars supporting Wesson. In other words, you know, uh, praising, singing her praises. But they spent two hundred and seven thousand against Limmer. And this is in a in a small Senate district where, mm-hmm. you know, in a normal year you might see, according to David Schultz, I asked him about this, you might see about five hundred thousand in spending in the district in the normal year. Here we're at, you know, triple that. It's just unbelievable to think about when I believe each Senate district in Minnesota has, what, like seventy or 80,000 people, which isn't a lot. And as I brought up, it's kind of a compact, or you brought up, it's kind of a compact district, too, being that it's basically uh, portions of Maple Grove and Rogers. So it's mind-blowing that you could spend that much money on a district that really doesn't have that many people, only about seventy or 80,000. Yeah, I think I calculated that if the 2016 vote totals, the turnout has remained the same, it would have been, somebody's going to correct my math and I'll be wrong, but I I seem to remember it was something like $30 a vote. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's an interesting calculation, how much money you're spending a vote. I'm sure uh, maybe some of the voters would have taken that $30 instead of uh, having that being spent on uh, various mailers and uh, attack ads that were run. All right, so yeah, well, I'm wondering if some of these groups would like to have a rebate. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. <laughs> so Warren Limmer will end up, it looks like, defeating the Democratic challenger Bonnie Westland by about 1,000 votes, or I think close to two percentage points. So the margin is... Yeah, like 1.69%, I think, was the margin I found last night, 1.69. Yeah, so it's a very, very close race. And I got to ask you about this because... There is still a chance that we could have a flood of absentee ballots that have not been received yet, but were postmarked before Election Day. I think you had a chance to speak with Secretary of State Steve Simon. And my question for you is that, does he think there are potentially enough votes available that maybe the Democrats could flip this race back in their favor? Well, uh, just so that I don't seem to be falsely name-checking, I'll, I'll correct that a little bit. I participated in a press conference, and I was able to ask him a question. There. Gotcha. Um, but does he – Does well, I'm going to give you a number that's going to excite your, your listeners, and then I'm going to quickly grab a pin and pop their balloon. Oh, microcosm of the election last night. <laughs> <laughs> there are – at least there were yesterday 3,500 or so outstanding absentee ballots in that district. Yeah, that so would initially that sound really good. exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, when, and I think when, uh, you know, for folks supporting Wesson, it would sound exciting. Um, and I think it's actually a little bit less than a thousand votes. I, I haven't done the math in a, since last night, and last night is a complete blur to me. But um, so that sounds like there's some room to maneuver there. However, when you're looking at these absentee ballot tools, the outstanding ballots, you've got to factor in a couple of really important things. One, some of those people who requested absentee ballots and received the the ballot in the mail may have opted instead to say, oh, it's a lovely day. Let's just go to the polls. So their their votes are already reflected in the existing total, and that ballot will never be returned. There's another group of folks who will say, eh, I don't feel like it. I'm not I'm not taking part in this thing. And their their ballot was sent out, and nothing is going to come of that. We don't know what those numbers are. And then, of course, there's the third category um, that I think is probably pivotal, and that is the number of ballots that arrived after 8 p.m. last night in the mail. 
there was a consent decree that it was court approved here in Minnesota that said that it would be okay to count those votes through November 10th. And in fact, okay to receive those votes and count them through November 10th, assuming they're postmarked by election day. But of course, we have the Eighth Circuit ruling. And the Eighth Circuit ruling has stated uh, pretty boldly that if you can go ahead and, and count those votes, you got to segregate them so that keep them in their own little pile. So if somebody does a legal challenge, we can easily identify them, point to them and say, challenge those. And the court ruling stated head on that anybody who uh, issues that kind of challenge is likely to succeed on the merits. What all that adds up to is I would be sort of surprised if many or even any of those outstanding votes uh, goes toward the addition, adds to the total. And that's key, not only in Senate District 34, but there are, I think, three other state Senate races where DFLers were trying to knock off Republican incumbents, and those margins were similar to what we're seeing in SD 34, where the Republican had won by about 1,000 votes or less. And as you're saying here, Kevin, uh, you're not very optimistic, at least according to the sources you've been able to speak to that, well, uh, there's going to be enough votes there to flip. Optimism is a subjective term. I'm, I'm merely stating the facts. Stating the facts, yes, indeed. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the partisan lean on my end here. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. You're you're free to do that. Um, I think you're actually referring to House seats, though. Um, there are there are three House seats. Yeah, there, there's a, we're talking about three different things. Yeah, I was going to say but there's there some House, house seats that are, that are extremely close. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they could they could be challenged. Um, they they're within that that. Uh, 0.5 percent um, difference in the vote total that qualifies them to request a state-funded recount. Um, that's the House for Julie Sanstead's seat in Hibbing. That's House 6A. Um, that's Representative Jeff Brandt's seat in 19A, and Amy Wozlick's uh, White Bear Township uh, seat in 38B. Wozlick is the only one of those three who holds a, a slim margin of uh, a slim lead right now. The other two are are trailing. So yeah, there, there could be recounts at least in the House. Yeah, especially yeah, as you were mentioning, there are a number of House races that are extremely close. Uh, at least on the Senate side, yeah, the two I were looking at that I think are close to still being within that one thousand vote margin where Republican incumbents held on. I'm thinking of that St. Cloud race between Putnam and uh, Jerry Ralph. I think that margin is something like actually that one I'm looking here is four hundred seven, and I think it. That Carla yeah. Nelson race in Rochester might be about 900 or 1,000. But, yeah, as you're talking about, though, uh, probably won't be enough votes there to flip either of those races for those uh, various reasons you brought up. So uh, very yeah. likely the Republicans are going to maintain that 35-32 majority. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that seems pretty clear. So going back to SD34, again, that's Maple Grove and Rogers, where Warren Limmer was able to fend off a challenge from Democrat, uh, his uh, Democratic challenger, uh, that would be, oh, why am I totally blanking on her name, right? Bonnie Westland. There we go. Man, it's been a long day and night. (laughs) So when you had a chance to speak with Limmer, uh, what what was he saying in terms of uh, why he was successful last night defending that seat? Uh, I didn't really ask him why he succeeded. I asked him a question of, did you feel that you are are gleaning any lessons hmm. from the effectiveness of the challenge that was mounted against you uh, uh, vis-a-vis the political positions he's taken with respect to gun reform, pot legalization, um, 
uh, criminal justice reform, some of the things that he's either dragged his feet on or, as he stated in the case of criminal justice reform, there simply wasn't time to accomplish in this last session. But his answer to that question was, no, I don't really feel like I've learned anything there. Um, as I mentioned, he said that the criminal justice reform stuff was just, a, you know, the, the sands ran out on that. And his other, to respect to the other things, he said that he thought that the Democrats had pushed pretty extreme positions on those issues. So he doesn't really feel like he's learned a particular uh, important lesson here, at least in terms of how he's approaching the issues. Yeah, so uh, probably not a lot of change happening with that public committee, public safety committee that he is currently the uh, chair of. Uh, did you have a chance right. to speak with uh, the Democratic challenger, uh, Bonnie Westlin, at all to get her thoughts on last night? Um, I was scheduled to speak to her. Her campaign manager uh, bailed out on me at the last moment. And that was after the total mm -hmm. came through, and you know I can only imagine that would have been a difficult conversation for her. And she's not an experienced politician, so I, I I regret that. I would I would have liked to ask her, you know, some questions about the race, and if she thought if if she perhaps thinks Senator Limmer should have learned some lessons, but I didn't get that opportunity. Yeah, it's got to be frustrating for her, being that it's well back to back races she's had against Warren Limmer, I believe, where she's lost by uh, this very, very narrow margin since uh, she ran back in 2016 against him, didn't she? I believe that's right. I'm not looking at the. I don't think the margin was quite as close, but I, I think it is a rematch. But I, actually, um, I'd have to go back and look to make certain of that. Yeah, I thought I saw that somewhere, but I, I could be wrong. Either way, I know back in 2016 that Warren Limmer did uh, win re-election that year by a narrow margin, and you could be correct that it might have been slightly bigger in 16 than it was in 2020. Uh, one of the race I know you were talking about, uh, Kevin, again, we're speaking with Kevin Featherly, the Capitol reporter for Minnesota Lawyer, was this race for the state Supreme Court where incumbent Paul Thiessen was uh, facing Michelle McDonald, who's been very active with conservative politics over the years and has quite the uh, checkered background, which uh, we can get into if we like. But uh, Thiessen was able to hang on to the seat by a pretty comfortable margin of 59% to 41%, and that that, I believe, is the most lopsided result that uh, any justice has had against Michelle McDonald since, uh, I believe, since 2014. In every single election, Michelle McDonald has tried to challenge a sitting Supreme Court justice. So uh, analyzing this race here, Kevin, uh, Thiessen ran kind of a different campaign, being that he is a sitting Supreme Court judge, where he ran, I don't know if aggressive, aggressive is necessarily the right term, but he definitely took this challenge seriously, and it looks like it paid off being that he won by a very comfortable margin. Yeah, I'm not sure that he felt that he was uh, under particular threat, because at this point, Ms. McDonald is becoming some of a perennial candidate. I, I think that the results are pretty similar to the, the race against uh, Justice Hudson a few years ago. I think they're relatively close margins. Um, but uh, yeah, I think he took it seriously. He says that he took it as an opportunity to use the race, uh, you know, as an educational tool. And so, and he, you know, he raised a fair amount of money, which is unusual for those kinds of races. He came in, I think, with $57,000 on the year. By the end of the year, he'd raised 216000 and spent all but $2,400 of it by the last end of the last reporting period. Um, and he did that on, you know, digital advertising, social media, uh, billboards, radio ads. He, he was pretty serious. And he, he held a, a pretty long uh, series of 
um, digital town halls, uh, social media videos, things like that. Uh, outreach, a lot of outreach. He wasn't able, like most candidates, wasn't able to do public events. But he was pretty serious, and you know, he he said that one of the things he's happiest about is that he part of his outreach was an effort that he called "turn over the ballot." And of course, the second page is where all the the judicial races are, and he he says he feels like he got that message got through, and, and people were able you know, who responded to that and that there was a response to the vote among the justice or judges. There were only, you know, a total of five competitive races in the entire state. Four of those were uh, county judicial districts. But yeah, I think he's, he's pleased with his, with what he did and, and uh, that it worked out. So I believe you also had a chance to speak with uh, Michelle McDonald last night. Again, she was the conservative challenger to uh, sitting Justice Paul Thiessen. Uh What did she say? Is she going to continue running for these state Supreme Court races? As we talked about, she's uh, basically been running since 2014. So uh, yeah, what are her thoughts? Is she going to continue, well, trying to fight the fight that she's trying to win? Or is she going to uh, maybe hang things up uh, going forward? Um, well, she didn't commit to running again, um, but mm-hmm. you know, she also didn't say, "I'm definitely not going to put myself through this anymore." <laughs> she, you know, I would imagine she she will, um, but you know, it's a little early to commit to that at this point. I mean, I, I'm not sure she even knew who her opponent might be in the next race. Um, but you know, she her take is that she also felt good about her campaign. You know, she feels, as she said, she felt the love. Uh, she, uh, did a lot of similar outreach. She didn't spend the kind of money. I think she only raised 615 bucks and, and that kind of landed in her lap because she wasn't soliciting donations. Um, but you know, she says that she, what she did commit to, she's going to continue to fight for her causes, which include, uh, fighting corruption in the judiciary, something that Thiessen adamantly says is non-existent. Um, she said something interesting that I didn't really pursue too much because it was really late and she was really tired and, you know, I needed to get the story written. But she she said that, her, I'll just read the quote, my hope with the COVID-19 shutdown of the courts is that we do not resume a court for families. Not necessary and it's nonsense a lot of times and that will still be a goal of mine. So what do you, you know, she wants basically to shut down the family court system mm-hmm. in and replace it, I think, with sort of uh, a different kind of dispute resolution. And, and she is somebody who, you know, is relatively effective, actually, in uh, dispute resolution circles. We've been speaking with Kevin Featherly. He is the Capitol Porter for Minnesota Lawyer. That website is minnlawyer.com if you want to follow along on his work with what he's writing about with Minnesota politics. Also follow him on Twitter at Kevin Featherly. Well, it's been an interesting few days here, Kevin. Appreciate you chiming in today, and uh, hopefully the next time we chat, we'll be functioning on a, a lot more sleep. <laughs> yeah. Hey, may I add a quick coda on the question of the 2016 race? Oh, sure, yeah. I yeah. just looked it up. Uh, Warren Limmer actually beat Bonnie Westland by 60% to 39% in that race. Wow, really? I was totally wrong on that. Yeah. I could have sworn that was a close one, but, uh, yeah, that was not even <laughs> – that was a pretty comfortable margin, it looks like. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, thank you very much for this. Absolutely, Kevin. Yeah, we'll have to chat again next week. I know you're working on some other pieces that are uh, not quite related to the election, but I think are still uh, really fascinating to follow along in the legal world. So hopefully we'll have a chance to chat about those uh, next week. So, hey, Kevin, thanks again for the time today. Thank you.
All right, we'll take a break and come on back with one final segment of FYI Politics with Brett Johnson. So stay with us. Cafe Latte combines a cafe dining experience with gourmet quality food. And right now, Cafe Latte has reopened to indoor dining at 50% capacity. So come check out their pizza and wine bar or get a treat from the bakery made fresh daily. Plus, you can still do online ordering and takeout along with gift cards. Just go to CafeLatte.com and choose from their ever-changing selection of award-winning salads, sandwiches, and soups. Cafe Latte is located off Victoria and Grand and online at CafeLatte.com. Happy Thanksgiving from Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, dedicated to serving over 500,000 homeowners. They want to thank you, Twin Cities, for 90 years of servicing your HVAC needs. Take advantage of the Thanksgiving special and save $1,000 or more on a new high-efficiency furnace. Ask about payment options and 0% financing. Learn how you can save $1,000 or more on your new furnace at standardheating.com specials. Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, the comfort you deserve. Don't be surprised if you hear your name when you walk into St. Paul Corner Drug. Our experienced staff make getting to know you their top priority. Developing a trusting relationship with our patients is the first step in providing personalized care that achieves the best outcomes possible. Make certain all your providers know who you are and what your needs are. It is a vital step in your well-being. Stop by St. Paul Corner Drug today to start a relationship with a staff that cares. St. Paul Corner Drug, pharmacy the way it should be. Just because the weather is cooler doesn't mean you have to stop enjoying outdoor dining and concerts. Crooner's Supper Club has upgraded their main outdoor stage for the cold weather. All the socially distanced tables are now tent sheltered and there's a brand new state-of-the-art custom heating system that will keep you warm on these cool nights. So enjoy some fall outdoor concerts while staying warm at the upgraded Crooner's Main Stage. Crooner's Supper Club off Moore Lake and Highway 65 and at croonersmn.com. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. You know who was the big winner in last night's election? That would be drugs. Yeah, here's why. Four states last night voted to legalize recreational cannabis, including one that I would have never imagined, South Dakota. Yeah, who would have imagined the ruby red state of South Dakota would be legalizing cannabis? But uh, the voters decided to go that direction, so there is a border state where you can uh, still get that uh, legally. I believe that will uh, happen sometime in July of next year. Uh, Oregon decriminalized hard drugs and voted to legalize psychedelic mushrooms. And pro-legalization candidates played, of course, a very pivotal role in many of our races here in Minnesota. So kind of an interesting takeaway if you're looking for the uh, biggest winner last night. Wasn't necessarily the Republicans or the Democrats. Uh, More than likely, it was uh, some of these initiatives to either uh, decriminalize drugs or to legalize uh, recreational cannabis, which again happened in four states, including South Dakota. All right, just want to share some thoughts on what happened last night in the national presidential election. Now, one of the major narratives we're going to hear is that, well, the polls were off again, like in 2016. Now, while it's true, the polls are going to be wrong. Uh, Talk to me next Wednesday when I host next. By the way, I'm going to be off Thursday and Friday. We'll have some guest hosts filling in for me as I try to unplug from politics for a while and uh, get everything reset with me. But I'm guessing by the time I chat with you next Wednesday, the polls are not going to be off by quite as much as you might think. 
In fact, I think in a lot of these states, and especially with the popular vote, it's probably going to fall within the margin of error. But what's also interesting to look at, too, going state by state with some of these polling misses is that the polls did mix big time in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Iowa. But then if you look at states like Arizona, our own state of Minnesota, Georgia, and Nevada, they pretty much nailed the result and predicted who was going to win. So something is clearly going on here in these state-by-state polls where in some states they missed by a wide margin, while in others, like our own state of Minnesota, the polls were pretty much spot on. Now also let's take a look at what happened with Joe Biden very likely becoming the next president of the United States. Again, uh, right now, he's ahead in Wisconsin and Michigan, and the only votes that are left to come in are going to be even more Democratic-leaning. So Biden is very likely to be the president of the United States, but guess what? He's going to have a Republican Senate, which is going to thwart a lot of his agenda. My thought on this is that, well, Joe Biden was probably the best moderate Democratic candidate the Dems could have nominated. I don't think they could have nominated a better moderate Democrat. He ran a good campaign. He didn't pretend to be someone else ideologically. He was an unabashed moderate. I think he spent his money wisely in the various states. He had pretty much all parts of the party behind him. He had good debates, had a good convention, and lo and behold, he still is going to barely defeat Donald Trump despite having everything really working in his favor and being a very strong, moderate Democratic candidate, he's only going to very narrowly defeat Donald Trump. So there's going to have to be some more soul-searching within the Democratic Party because when you basically had all the stars aligned for you with your moderate Democratic candidate, you're only going to end up barely winning. So in 2024, some things are going to have to change within the Democratic Party because outside of these very special circumstances we had in 2020, I'm not sure they're going to have a lot of success with a Biden-type candidate, uh, given what we saw last night. I mean, big picture, the good news, Biden very likely to win. But come 2024, things are most certainly going to have to change with the DNC and how Democrats as a whole select their presidential candidate in 2024, since Biden is very likely to only be in office for one term. All right, that's all the time I got for my show today. Uh, We got Matt McNeil coming up next here on AM 950. Now, more than ever, we are being faced daily with a topic of human mortality. And for many people, estate planning has been top of mind. Getting your estate planning done now can be easy and cost-effective. Shroman Law offers virtual options for initial consultations so that new clients can safely initiate the process. With many facing uncertain financial situations, Shroman Law also offers a... 